I guess it's a bit of a mixture, isn't it, really? We have a, we have a new grandson, and um, he had no choice in when he was born. None at all. He's arrived. This is the age he's going to live in, like little David walking around. He doesn't get any choice in that. That's the age he lives in. Whether we might feel this is a nervous time with all that's going on. And Moses is born into a very fractious time. We looked at that last time, didn't we? Where the nation he's born into, the family he's born into, are slaves of the superpower of the day. And not, any, not in any kind way, but they're worked ruthlessly and mercilessly. Not a good time to be born, I wouldn't have thought. And you probably find a lot of those who... Scripture, let's read just the first ten verses which give the account of his birth. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. That last little bit, she named him Moses. Um, commentators sort of disagree on whether the she refers to Pharaoh's daughter or to Moses' mother. It could be either. But the name Moses and drew him out of the water, is a play on words. And some suggest that's more understandable from a Hebrew point of view than from an Egyptian point of view. And in view of the fact the writer has put that, the chances are he's directing more of our thoughts towards his mother choosing that name for him rather than Pharaoh's daughter. But here's the first thing I want to just draw your attention to this morning, is that life goes on even in the worst of times. And it's interesting that um, Liz came and spoke to us a little bit about that earlier on, didn't she? Just saying that God feels for us, even when he's going to bring life to us, at the time when all seems dark and cold and painful and hurtful, God still feels for us, even when he's going to bring life a little later on. Well, he's feeling for the Israelites at the moment. We're not going to read that little bit at the end of the chapter which speaks about God feeling for them, hearing their cries and remembering his covenant. We'll come to that next time. But God feels for us, and life goes on even in the worst of times. After all the kerfuffle of a big vote like the referendum and all the disruption it seems to cause, life just goes on. And when you get to our level, 
people in the higher echelons of society are making big decisions and grappling with big issues. But, but for most of us, life is just going on, isn't it? In a small way. People are still doing their shopping, going to work, getting on the bus, hoping the car doesn't break down, looking after their dog, visiting the sick and all the rest of it. All the normal things of life go on. And that's where life is laid out, isn't it? And we just have this story. Notice no one is named in this part of the chapter apart from Moses. Sometimes we get names. Much of the time we don't. And this writer is drawing our attention to the story that this is Moses who we're listening to because it's going to be Moses who's going to have a big part to play. But we understand from looking at other parts of Scripture that Moses' parents are, here's your start of a ten, who can tell me who Moses' parents are? I know, because I looked it up. So I'm ahead of the game. But does anyone remember what Moses' parents' name were? Amram and Jochebed. That's why you, well done. They're not sort of names that stick in your mind, really, are they? Not chip off the tongue. But Amram and Jochebed, both from the same tribe, um, married each other. And we have here one of his sisters. Well, his sister. I don't know whether he had any more than one sister. Do you remember Moses' sister's name? Miriam, that's right. And he has a brother. Aaron. Right, so he's the third. There may be others in the family. They're not mentioned in Scripture. There may be others. But just these three. Miriam is, appears to be the oldest. Aaron is three years older, if I do my calculations right, than Moses, and then Moses is born. But Aaron isn't mentioned in this part of the chapter. So here's a little family here. Amram, Jochebed, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses turns up. Now this is not a good time to have a baby because Pharaoh has said that all the babies have to be killed. So this is a real mixed blessing, isn't it? And Jochebed has carried Moses in her womb for nine months, fretting about it. And perhaps Amram too. What on earth are they going to do? You can't hide pregnancy. You can put a big cloak over it, so maybe it's less obvious than in a Western society. But nonetheless, at some point the baby's going to be born, and what are they going to do? This is a real conundrum, isn't it? But they are godly people. If we were to read what the writer to the Hebrews has to say, and a little bit about what Stephen has to include in Acts 7 in his history lesson to his hearers, we discover that Moses somehow or other, in an unspecified way, understood himself to belong to the Hebrews, not to the Egyptians. And in also an unspecified way, understood himself to be called of God to deliver the Israelites. And he thought they would understand, but they didn't, and it all went wrong. So where did he get that idea from? Well, he must have got it from his parents, mustn't he? Because he's not going to Sunday school, he's not going to church, he's not doing any of those things. The only place he could have got it from is from his mum and dad. And the chances are probably more from his mum than from his dad. Not to say anything about Amram at all, but he's probably busier with bricks and mortar, then Jochebed might be. But I don't want to push that one too far. But Jochebed, as the mother, has a closer connection. He's going to pick up his understanding of the world through his parents teaching him things. They are godly people who are passing on to their son and their other son and their daughter the stories of Genesis, 
the stories of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, all the things that we are so familiar with in the book of Genesis, they are passing those stories on and trying to encourage their son to believe that that God is still their God, even though it appears that for scores, maybe even hundreds of years, God hasn't seemed to say anything at all. These parents are passing on these stories. In the ordinary life that just goes on in the worst of times, godly parents passing on godly stories to their children to encourage them and strengthen them. My friends, you can't pray too much for young parents. You can't pray too much for children, can you? It's no wonder we pray for Sunday school teachers. It's no wonder we pray for the teachers who teach our children in the local school. It's no wonder we pray for mums and dads across the country. They have a big responsibility to teach the stories of God to the children. Sad to say, of course, that, as we many of us know, that many children don't even know the Lord's Prayer, wouldn't even know it if it came up and bumped them in the face, would they? They can't record it. Many of the things you would assume uh, they would know, they don't know. Whenever I listen to a quiz program, and I don't listen to many, but you, often the hardest question on there is the one from the Bible. People struggle and you think, but, but it's Abraham. The answer's Abraham. Why don't you know? But they don't. They struggle and come up with all sorts of things because they just don't know. Why would they know if no one taught them? So life goes on, even in the worst of times, holding on to God. And in view of Pharaoh's edict, their, the birth of their son is a mixed blessing, but they're determined to save his life because they, like the midwives, recognize, Amram and Jochebed recognize where true power lies. They are not going to chuck their son in the river. They're going to do everything they can to bring him up to know and to love the Lord. So, life goes on. What's life like for most of us? There's ups and downs, aren't there? Difficulties, heartaches. Things that go well, things that don't go right. Farmers wondering about whether they're going to get their crops in on time or whether it's going to be destroyed by some sort of hailstorm overnight. It can be wiped out. Um, some years ago when it was our 25th wedding anniversary. We wanted to invite some folk to have a cream tea. So we did that and I was going to get some strawberries on the 13th of July, ready for the 14th of July. And I couldn't find more than about six pounds of strawberries anywhere I went to all these um, pick-your-own. And I went to the one at Stone Cross and I was going there and I said, have you got any strawberries? I want about 50 pounds weight. He said, no, I haven't. And I looked, I could see the strawberry field. I said, I can see them from here. He said, go and have a look then. And I went and had a look. And there were loads of lovely, luscious strawberries. And the moment you picked them, they'd been wiped out by the rain. His whole crop wiped out by a thunderstorm that just reduced these strawberries to struggle. So people struggle in all sorts of ways. But life goes on. And the Christian life is lived out in the ordinary mix of life. The chances are your life this coming week is going to be much the same as it was last week. Nothing extraordinary is going to happen. Maybe it will, I don't know. Mine certainly was going to be the normal stuff. And that's where Christian living is lived out, isn't it? 
not just in the big events of life or the important things, but in the ordinary run of the mill things. People you see day after day, people you talk to day after day. That's where it's lived out. And that's where we hold on to God. Here's the second thing. Faith in God means trusting him. So when the child is born and they can hide him for three months, but after that something's got to happen because he's becoming too boisterous a boy, either Jochebed and Amram deciding together or in some way at the wit's end, they take one of the baskets they have, coat it with pitch and tar, make a little waterproof basket out of it, put their baby in it, and then put it among the reeds in the river, which has got crocodiles in it and has a quite a strong current. What's going to happen? Is this fulfilling Pharaoh's edict? Well, I suppose it is. They have put him in the river, haven't they? Except they put him in a basket before they put him in the river. So technically speaking, they've obeyed Pharaoh's edict. But they are literally putting their son in the hands of God. They will have known the story of the ark, Noah and his ark. That will be a story that would have been told to them of God rescuing one family. Now they're never going to be thinking of the same sort of story, but nonetheless they are remembering the stories of people's faith in God. Noah saying, well, if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'll do. If that's what we want me to build, that's what I'll build. And God rescuing him. Abraham being called of God, go from here to there. Where am I going? I'm not telling you till you get there. How do I know I'm going to be safe there? You don't. You've just got to trust me. And remembering those stories of faith. And here they are on their wits end. What are they going to do with their son? What options do they have? They can't leave the country. They are weak, powerless people, but they do what they can, which is to trust their son to God. So, they pray a lot, I guess, and put him in the basket. And Miriam, his elder sister, wanders along the riverbank to see what will happen. Maybe they've put it in this particular place because they know the Nile being a very special place for the Egyptians. It has a God um, dimension to it. So maybe they knew that the princess would come along in a little while, the king's daughter, and bathe here. So maybe they're hoping for that to happen. Anyway, uh, Miriam, by her own volition or with her mother's encouragement, stands nearby to see what would happen, presumably to report back to her parents as to what has happened. And as Jochebed might have hoped, along comes a princess, a pharaoh's daughter, again, not named here, and she finds Moses. And here's an ironic part, isn't it? She instantly recognizes him as a Hebrew. And she knows her father has commanded all his people to throw all the Hebrew baby boys into the river. She can tell this is a Hebrew baby boy. But her father has reckoned without the sensitivity of a woman's heart, even an Egyptian princess's heart. And she feels sorry for him. So Miriam understands that to be some kind of act of grace because she pushes herself through the reeds along to this woman and says um, if you're thinking about looking after him I can help you with that do you want me to go and get one of the Hebrew women to wet nurse him for you and the princess says what a good idea that would be brilliant um, so who does Miriam go and get but Jochebed and here's the irony of ironies 
Uh, the princess says to Djokovic, oh, this would be such a joy for me, and by the way, I'll pay you for doing it. So now Djokovic has her son back to look after him for longer, and is going to be paid to do it, under the royal protection of one of the king's daughters. I'm not thinking that God is playing jokes here, but this is just delicious, isn't it? At the moment when Jochebed and Amram are really fearful for their son's life, it's almost as if God delivers him right back to them and says, it's okay. I have things in hand. Now God hasn't spoken in this at all. It's all circumstantial. There's no word from God saying, put him in an ark and I will give him back to you. Do this and I'll do that. There's not any of that. There's no prophecies in here. It's all circumstantial. But if we believe that God is over everything, then we don't need God to be speaking in our ears about everything. We can see what's happening and look at the hands of God involved, can't we? We can see God at work in all manner of different ways. We were invited this morning just to look around at creation and all sorts of other things and give praise to God. Not in some trivial way, but to recognize this is God's world and God is active in his world even if we cannot see directly what he may be doing. Amram and Jochebed don't know what's happening. They don't know what their son's going to be. Maybe they die long, long before any of that happens. They're just living one day at a time. For them, life is that insecure. They don't know if they've got a tomorrow. Amram could be beaten to death, as one man will be in the next section of this chapter. For some trivial transgression of an Egyptian's sensibilities. They don't know what they've got, they're just living each day. And as we live each week, we have to have eyes to see what God is doing. Opportunities. I was listening to um, someone speaking at a conference and she was saying, I'm a bit of an activist. Well, that's an understatement. I know her and she's very much an activist. But she said, I'm trying to find ways of slowing down. So she said, I'm, I'm learning to stop at traffic lights, not as a car driver, by the way. She already did that but uh, as a pedestrian. And instead of zooming across in a break in the traffic, she'd press the button and wait for the green man. And if anyone stopped beside her, she would engage them in conversation. She would say, I'm waiting for the green man, but while we're waiting, I just want to say, I'm a Christian. Is there anything I can pray for you? Just like that. And after the initial shock system, she's been getting people talking to her as they're waiting for the green man. Can you believe this in London? But it's happening. Just looking for opportunities where God may be at work and just saying, I have a moment here. And this, what's more important, this person has a moment here and I'm not intruding on the speed of, because all the others just zoom across. It's this person who's waiting. What opportunities might God be giving you this week? What is God doing that he needs us to have eyes to see or ears to hear what he's saying? And I suspect some of our most successful winsome Christian friends are those who don't do necessarily loads of stuff. They just are alert to where God is at work and they're listening to him. So here's a woman who puts her son in a vulnerable place but trusts God, has no idea what God could do. What on earth could God do? But it happens and she gets the son back trusting God 
doesn't always work out like that, but it's working out like that at the moment. Have you noticed so far in this story, all the her heroes are heroines? Have you noticed that? It's all women, isn't it? And then when we fear God, we need not fear any man. So now Moses is, as it were, in the dangerous place. He's with his mother at the moment, but he's going to be moving into the palace at some point or other. So when he is weaned and palace trained, I guess, Jochebed's influence upon her son has come to an end. But she's had these precious years, probably, years of teaching her son to whom he rightfully belongs. We are your people and this is your God. The Jesuits used to say, give us a child until he's seven and we have him for life. Those early years are very, very precious. And it's great to see little David just wandering around here that you don't feel uncomfortable when he cries a little bit because why wouldn't he because he's a little child. I can remember preaching in another church many years ago and there was a little boy of about three who would just wander around the church all the way through the service. And when I was preaching, he would just wander around looking up and looking at me and not making any disturbances. And then he'd go back to his seat where his parents were. And I looked at him and he would turn to his dad and ask him a question. I couldn't hear what the question was. I couldn't hear anything as I'm speaking. But the father is just answering the question and the little boy's looking around again and asking his father another thing. I'm thinking... What a great little church this is where children can come and say, what's happening now? And it can be explained to them. It's a living experience, not just coming and doing and then going, but a living place where children like that are comfortable among the people of God, hearing about what God is doing. And Jochebed has had this wonderful time with her son that's going to last him, it's going to have to last him more than 30 years because you're going to have no more influence upon him. Then he's going to be immersed in the things of Egypt. He's going to learn all the things of Egypt, and he's not going to hear the stories of his people. So these stories of his childhood are going to have to last him. But Jochebed and Amram are good teachers, and they've shown him the way and spoken the word of truth into him. And his life will never be the same. So at some point in the future, when he's about 40, years and years into the future, a trigger will snip, will trip, and he'll suddenly remember to whom he belongs and the God of his ancestors. So Moses enters this story as a dangerous time, and it won't be the last time that God has all so much depending upon a small, vulnerable child. But God can defend small children from a Pharaoh or from a Herod or from anyone else. We, John and I were talking about this as we came in this morning. It seems that we're not immortal, but it almost seems as if we're invincible until God says otherwise. It's a strange thing, you can't always work it out, but it's almost as if we're invincible until God says otherwise. Even if that invincibility is manifested in weakness and suffering. So while the Roman yoke lay heavy across the people of God in later years and the powerful vested interests of the religious establishment were busy plotting his death, Jesus would say, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He knew that his life was in his father's hands, even though it would be the hands of men who would carry out 
the crucifixion. So, now we wait. How often in scripture we wait. The deliverer has been born. The salvation plan is on its way. But there's now going to be an extended period of silence again for 80 years, with a little hiccup at 40, but for 80 years, again, nothing's going to happen. And life for these poor, beleaguered slaves is going to go on much as it has done for the last, well, however long. But we should never think that because it doesn't appear that God is doing something, that he isn't. If we could see behind the scenes, or if Moses could see behind the scenes, he would see that God is doing something. If Amram and Jochebed could see behind the curtain, they would see that God has got something in train that one day will come to fruition. Another 80 years will pass before God, as it were, presses the start button. But God's timing is so often doesn't match ours. So meanwhile, Amram and Jochebed, even though they're now separated from their son and have no more control over him, he's now in, in Egypt's court. He's now with Pharaoh's daughter, are surely praying for him, are surely pleading for God with him, holding him before God. They have no idea what life will be for him. He's part of, as it were, the enemy. They have no more control, but they can pray, and they can pray, and they can pray. My mother was one of the first to become a Christian in my family. When she did, I believe she started praying for her family, not just her children, but for her own siblings, but for then our partners that we would marry and the children. And a very high proportion of my family, and there's a lot of us, are Christians. And I think that's in no small part to a praying grandmother and a praying mother. Even though she had no other influence to bear upon us, apart from being a hospitable, loving lady, I believe her prayers, God graciously, has been answering through the years. Amram and Jochebed are praying for Moses. Not praying for something specific, not for him to become happy, or successful, or powerful, or rich, but maybe just praying that he will be a godly man who won't forget the God of his ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and will take his place in God's story. And maybe that's an answer they never ever saw, but we will be reading about. Meanwhile, life for all the other Hebrews goes on as before. Life just goes on. So as you go in this week, to another ordinary week, with perhaps important things happening unexpectedly, or maybe not, Remember this, this is where our faith in God is lived out day by day. We don't know what God's doing, but we can look for every opportunity to join with him where he is with us. Let me pray. Father, on a Sunday we thank you for the week that's passed, the week in which we know you were with us every moment of the day the week over which we ask for your forgiveness for things we did wrong, the good things we didn't do, and in any other way in which we offended you. But on the Sunday we also look forward to the week to come, the week that is totally unknown to us, but known completely to you. 
We expect it to be much the same as last week, Lord, in terms of circumstances, but we don't know. We are yours, Lord, and we want we live to serve your majesty. And we are confident that you will be where we are all this week, whether it's in a field with cows or by a hospital bed or working with children or alone at home or in any other one of a hundred different situations. You will be with us. Lord, give us eyes to see where you are at work. Give us ears that hear the least hint of your word and show us, Lord, how we can live out in our ordinary lives the glorious riches of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that your grace fills us with joy and delight, that your spirit pours your love abroad in our hearts. So, Lord, enable us to live out the glorious truth the gospel of Jesus Christ in this coming week to the praise of your glorious name.